Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 107 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we begin with news that Warner Music have had a data breach which has leaked customers' credit and debit card details. We then travel to Australia, where in New South Wales, a data breach has exposed over 50,000 driver's licences. We then travel back to Europe and to Finland, where the Social Security Agency, Keller, has declared a data breach after using the wrong paper for letters sent out to claimants. Back to the UK, and an aspiring barrister has used GDPR to obtain interview feedback as to why he was not successful in getting a placement in various barristers' chambers. We then move back to the US and some background on why Joe Sullivan has been involved in the Uber data breach cover-up. And staying in the US, we look at a $5 million class action lawsuit being launched against Morgan Stanley after data breaches at Morgan Stanley. We then come back to the UK and have an update on the data breach which we brought to you several episodes ago at Basingstoke Hospital. And then we have a broader look at GDPR and the impact of the SREMS 2 case and its effect on the EU-US data privacy shield and how the Uniform Foreign Country Money Judgments Recognition Act may put a spanner in the works with the implementation of standard contractual clauses. We then travel to Malta where there has been a data breach of electoral register details and then to France where the Data Protection Authority CNIL has confirmed that it's launching an investigation into social media platform TikTok. And then finally this week, we end with breaking news that Claire's accessories are facing a class action after a data breach. So a good mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find something there that is useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, we always welcome your feedback. Please just email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, but due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not able to necessarily reply to each individual feedback individually. But we do look to incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GPL Weekly Show. We begin this week with news that Warner Music has issued a data breach notification following a prolonged stimming attack on an undisclosed number of its e-commerce websites. The cyber attack was discovered by the multinational entertainment and record label conglomerate on August 5th, 2020. E-commerce websites that are hosted and supported by an external service provider in the USA but operated by Warner were found to have been compromised by an unauthorised third party. By installing data stimming malware on the sites, the threat actor was able to access information being entered by customers. Personal data compromised in the attack is believed to include names, email addresses, telephone numbers, billing addresses, shipping addresses, credit card numbers, card expiration dates, and most importantly, CBC and CVV codes, which are the three digits off the back of a card, which give hackers much more opportunity to make fraudulent purchases using the card details that they've gained. The as-yet-unidentified cybercriminal access warned customers' personal information entered into the affected websites during transactions made between April 25, 2020 and August 5, 2020. Payments made through PayPal were reportedly not affected by this incident. A data breach notice sent by Warner to the affected customers stated that any personal information customers had entered into the affected websites after placing an item in your shopping cart was potentially acquired by the unauthorised third party. 
Warner said that it was prompt to inform relevant credit card providers and law enforcement of the breach. The company has not yet disclosed how many customers were affected by the incident. Affected customers have also been offered 12 months of identity monitoring services free of charge by Warner. This cyber attack against Warner comes three years after Warner fell victim to a phishing scam that resulted in the leak of 3.12 terabytes of internal data relating to Vivo, the company's premium music video producer. We've not yet had any further comment from Warner or the ICO on this data breach, but as soon as we receive any notification, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Moving to Australia now, more than 50,000 New South Wales driver's licences have been exposed in a mystery data leak. The personal information of tens of thousands of New South Wales motorists may have been exposed in a mysterious online data leak, and experts believe the source could be a fleet or toll road operator. A folder containing 108,535 scanned images of more than 50,000 driver's licences and another containing roads and maritime services toll notice statutory declarations was uncovered by Europe-based cyber threat consultant Bob Yashenko while he was investigating a different data breach. The files, which were understood to be PDF and JPEG, were stored on a misconfigured Amazon Cloud storage service, featured personal information such as phone numbers, addresses and birth dates, all which were available for public view. In a tweet, Mr. Giacenko wrote, More than 50,000 scanned driver licences front and back and toll notices exposed in a misconfigured S3 bucket, accompanied by a screenshot of a list of files dated from 2018. Most likely part of NSW RMS infrastructure, Road and Maritime New South Wales, Australia. While the data has since been secured, the source of the uploaded files remains unclear and it is understood that those affected by the breach are yet to be contacted. However, a Transport for New South Wales spokesperson said that the data was not related to Transport for New South Wales or any government system. Transport for New South Wales does not retain nor collect toll data in the manner described, the spokesperson explained. Transport in New South Wales is, however, working with Cybersecurity New South Wales to investigate the alleged data issue relating to an Amazon Web Services S3 bucket containing personal information including driver's licence. While it is important for licence holders to be privacy aware when providing their sensitive personal information to other parties, Transport for New South Wales recognises that some third parties routinely request driver licence information as part of their business practice. Transport for New South Wales policies and procedures recognise the need for case-by-case consideration for customers believed to be impacted by identity fraud and, where necessary, issues new driver licence photo cards as appropriate. While the average layperson would have been unlikely to locate the exposed files, the nature of the breach was such that it would be trivial for anyone with a solid amount of technological knowledge to uncover. As always, if we get any update on this from any authorities in New South Wales, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We move to Finland now and a good example of how a data breach doesn't have to be directly electronic data. It can be paper data as well. And in this particular case, Finland's social insurance institution, Taylor, has apologised after the use of a new type of paper stock could have led to a breach of personal data. 
Taylor said that customer details may have been partially visible through the envelope address window in a batch of approximately 80,000 letters sent on 26th and 27th of August 2020, simply because the paper was too thin, which meant that if you looked through the window on the envelope, you could make out what was on the back of the sheet of paper folded behind the name and address which was shown through the window. Although the problem was detected quickly, the letters unfortunately had already been sent to customers. The paper quality has now been changed. We are very sorry for our mistake, said Zucker Melanin, Taylor's IT director. Taylor said it has notified Finland's Data Protection Commissioner about the error and pointed out that about 60,000 letters are printed every day by the benefits agency. We've not had any comment from the Finland Data Protection Commissioner, but if we receive any update, we will of course bring it to you as soon as we can. An aspiring barrister thought outside the box this week to secure application interview feedback from over 20 of the country's top legal chambers. The bar hopeful acquired a veritable treasure trove of internal scoring sheets, application criteria and interview comments by invoking his rights under GDPR. In doing so, he effectively compelled the likes of Brick Court, Moncton Chambers and Blackstone Chambers, amongst others, to hand over the information it held on him, including some rather eye-catching interview comments. These included extremely articulate but show-offy, brilliant but exhausting, and prone to slightly pretentious references. With many chambers citing lack of resource for failing to offer candidate-specific feedback, the move could prompt other want-to-be barristers to make similar access requests and find out where they went wrong during the drooling process. Chambers' lack of feedback to applicants has been a bone of contention for some time, and in 2017, an aspiring barrister went public after being left astonished that their chambers, or prospective chambers, had asked them to pay a £10 administration fee to obtain feedback on their interview. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do! It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids! Thanks Mike! Tailmate, a widely used prison phone service, left millions of inmates and their contacts data exposed online. The company is behind an app called Getting Out, which gives prisoners a way to make monitored voice and video calls and to send texts to their loved ones. Due to the nature of the service, the exposed data included identifiable information and personal correspondence. Bob Dioshenko discovered an unsecured database in early August containing 11 million records of inmates and their contacts, as well as 227 million message records. The prisoners' records were complete with their full names, details of their offence, religion, the facility that they were at, their relationship status, the medications they're taking, and even whether they identify as transsexual. Meanwhile, their contacts records included their names, email, physical and even IP addresses, their phone numbers and their driver's licence details. Tailmate owner Global Taillink secured the database within a few hours of being informed. In a statement Global Taillink provided, the company blamed the incident on the actions of one of its vendors and clarified that no medical data, password or consumer payment information had been affected. But seeing as the collection didn't even need a password for access, bad actors could have downloaded it all making the inmates and their contacts targets for fraud, identity theft and phishing schemes. Worse still, the information could subject prisoners' contacts to harassment and discrimination. This security leak is far from the first controversy that GTL and Tailmate have been involved in. GTL and its subsidiaries have long been accused of price-fixing for inmates, 
and charging them exorbitant toll rates. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll remember that back in episode 105, we brought you news that the former Uber Chief Security Officer, Joe Sullivan, had been charged for his alleged role in the data breach cover-up at Uber. Sullivan, currently CSO of Cloudflare, has been charged with one count of obstruction of justice and one count of misprision of a felony in connection with the Uber's response to the 2016 data breach. Prosecutors claim he orchestrated the cover-up by paying $100,000 in hush money to the threat actors behind the breach and disguising the payment as a bug bounty reward. The objective, according to the criminal complaint against Sullivan, was to conceal the 2016 Uber breach from both the public and the US Federal Trade Commission. To give a little bit of the timeline behind this whole case, in May 12, 2014, threat actors accessed personal data of Uber customers and drivers contained in an Amazon Web Services S3 bucket. The attackers used an Amazon Web Services access key that was publicly posted on GitHub and obtained information that included 100,000 drivers' names, drivers' license numbers, physical addresses, email addresses and other data. In September 2014, Uber's security team discovered the intrusion and began investigating the incident. Then in February 2015, Uber sent a breach notification to its drivers and also disclosed the attack to the FTC which began an investigation into the incident. Then on April the 2nd, 2015, Uber hired Joe Sullivan as its first corporate security officer. Sullivan previously served as Facebook's corporate security officer for five years. On November the 4th, 2016, Sullivan provided sworn testimony to the FTC regarding its investigation into the 2014 breach, which predated his arrival at the company. Sullivan testified about Uber's use of Amazon Web Services S3 storage buckets as well as data privacy practices to safeguard information stored in those buckets. Then on November 14, 2016, Sullivan received an email from an anonymous threat actor claiming they had exploited a major vulnerability and obtained access to an Uber database. Uber's security team investigated the claim and discovered that attackers had used stolen GitHub credentials to access Uber's private code repository where they found Amazon Web Service credentials and accessed an S3 bucket with the database. The next day, on November 15, 2016, Sullivan contacted the then CEO of Uber, Travis Kalanick, about a sensitive matter, according to records of text messages. Kalanick spoke with Sullivan and then sent a text message discussing how the matter could be treated as a bug bounty situation. On December 8, 2016, using HackerOne's bug bounty platform, Uber authorised a $100,000 payment to the threat actors behind the breach, who later signed non-disclosure agreements regarding the incident. In January 2017, Uber's security team identified the threat actors behind the breach. Then in April 19, 2017, Uber sent a letter to the FTC requesting the Commission close its investigation into the 2014 data breach. The letter states that Uber had fully cooperated with the FTC and provided exhaustive responses to investigators' inquiries, while also claiming that Uber's security team had implemented numerous and extensive additional protections for data stored in its Amazon S3 buckets to prevent the repeat of the 2014 incident. The letter made no mention of the 2016 data breach. Then in June 21, 2017, Kalanick stepped down as CEO of Uber following several scandals. Then on August 15, 2017, Uber and the FTC agreed to a proposed settlement regarding the company's 2014 breach, as well as claims that Uber employees had improperly accessed customers' personal information. 
The settlement prohibits Uber from misrepresenting its security practices and requires the company to implement a comprehensive privacy programme and to undergo third-party audits every two years for the next 20 years. On August 29, 2017, Uber announced its new CEO. In September 2017, Sullivan is asked to brief the new CEO about the 2016 Uber data breach. However, according to court documents, Sullivan's briefing omits key details about the breach. Then on November 21, 2017, in an open letter, the new CEO discloses the 2016 breach with an apology for not disclosing the incident earlier. On the same day, Bloomberg first reported that Sullivan and Craig Clark, a senior lawyer on Sullivan's team, were fired for concealing the breach and paying off the hackers. Then on April 12, 2018, the FTC announced it has withdrawn the proposed settlement with Uber behind the 2014 data breach and criticised the company for conceding the 2016 breach during its initial investigation. Then on May 16, 2018, Cloudflare hired Sullivan as its new corporate security officer. On August 2, 2018, a grand jury indicts Brandon Charles Glover and Vasil Mereka with attempted extortion from Lynda.com, now LinkedIn Learning, an online employment training and education service. Dlava and Mirieka are accused of gaining access to 90,000 Linda accounts and demanding payment from LinkedIn in December 2016. Then on September 26, 2018, Uber agrees to a settlement with the Attorney General of all 50 states and the District of Columbia regarding the 2016 data breach. Uber agrees to pay a record $148 million penalty for concealing the breach. On October 26, 2018, the FTC approves a revised settlement with Uber. The company is subject to civil penalties for any failures to disclose future breaches or security incidents involving unauthorised access to customer or driver data. Then on October 30th, 2019, the Department of Justice announces that Glover and Mireka, then 26 and 23, each pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit extortion in a superseding indictment related to the Uber data breach. The two men admit Uber paid them $100,000 by a hacker one under the guise of a bug bounty. And then on August the 21st, 2020, Sullivan is charged with one count of obstruction of justice and one count of misprision of a felony. Authorities claim Sullivan covered up the 2016 breach from the public and the FTC in an attempt to obstruct the FTC's investigation. We don't yet know when Sullivan is actually going to appear in court, but when he does, we'll bring you updates in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. Back in episodes 99 and 102 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you details about a data breach at Morgan Stanley. And now Morgan Stanley has been hit with a $5 million data breach lawsuit. The lawsuit seeking class action status has been filed against Morgan Stanley, claiming the financial organisation failed to properly safeguard personally identifiable information when the company discarded of older computer equipment. The lawsuit has been brought by Morgan Stanley customer Timothy Smith in the US District Court for the Southern District of New York on behalf of about 100 other customers affected by the data breach. The case is tied to incidents in 2016 and 2019 when the firm decommissioned several pieces of computer equipment without properly scrubbing the personal data from the equipment. Morgan Stanley confirmed these incidents in data breach notification letters sent to the Californian Attorney General and other states' Attorney Generals. The letter notes the data exposed may have included account names and numbers at Morgan Stanley, 
and any linked bank accounts, social security numbers, passport numbers, contact information, date of birth, asset value and holdings data. It says it has offered victims two years of prepaid credit monitoring services. To give a bit of background, in 2016, Morgan Stanley closed two data centres and decommissioned the computer equipment at both locations. As is customary, they contacted the vendor to remove the data from the devices. Morgan Stanley say they subsequently learned that certain devices believed to have been wiped of all information still contained some unencrypted data. In a second incident in 2019, the company disconnected and replaced the computer server in a local branch office that contained information on encrypted disks. During a recent inventory, we were unable to locate that device and a software flaw in the server could have allowed some data to be exposed, Morden Stanley said. The lawsuit claims that if criminals obtained access to the device involved, they could use the customer data they contained to steal identities or sell it to other criminals or use it to make fraudulent purchases. But a Morgan Stanley spokesperson said, We have continuously monitored the situation and have not detected any unauthorised activity related to the matter, nor access to or misuse of any personal client information. The lawsuit alleges the personally identifiable information compromised due to Morgan Stanley's negligent and or careless acts and omissions and the failure to protect customers' data. In addition to Morgan Stanley's failure to prevent the data breach, the defendant failed to detect the data breach for years, and when they did discover the data breach, it took them over a year, possibly longer, to report it to the affected individuals and the State Attorney General. The lawsuit also alleges that Morgan Stanley did not use reasonable security procedures and practices appropriate to the nature of the sensitive, unencrypted customer information it was maintaining, that Morgan Stanley could have prevented the data breach by encrypting the data, and that Morgan Stanley had failed to learn from similar previous incidents. Back in episode 103, we brought you news about a data breach at Basingstoke Hospital concerning women who had suffered stillbirths. We now have an update on that story. The Hampshire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust reported a data breach to the Information Commissioner's Office and the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has now concluded its investigation into the incident and decided to not take any further action but instead to offer some advice to the Trust. Judy Dawes, Deputy Chief Executive and Chief Nurse at Hampshire Hospitals Foundation Trust, said... Last month, as a precaution, we referred a potential breach in our recent board papers to the Information Commissioner's Office. We have received a decision that no further action by the ICO is necessary on this occasion, and we are constantly reviewing our practices to ensure that we meet the highest possible standards. Following an internal review, we have already taken the steps to ensure the learning from this matter is fully taken into account. A spokesperson for the ICO said, We looked into the details of this incident and decided not to take formal enforcement action on this occasion. The women affected were not named and we didn't consider them to be easily identifiable and the Trust had reviewed the papers prior to publication. We provided advice about data protection to the Trust to consider additional measures to render identification less likely in future instances. The Trust has said that it has previously apologised to the women affected and said it was now offering them support. Hampshire Hospitals Foundation Trust has reported eight other data breaches to the ICO in the last five years, of which only one has resulted in further action. The breaches included data emailed to an incorrect recipient in July this year, information posted or faxed to the wrong person in August last year, and disclosure of data in July 2017. Only one data breach, a disclosure of data in October 2018, resulted in any action being taken. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Back in episode 100, we brought you news of the SREMS 2 case, which regular listeners will remember 
meant that the EU-US data privacy shield was ruled to be invalid under GDPR. Since then, there's been much searching for possible solutions of how data can be legally and safely transferred between the UK and the USA, and indeed between the EU and the USA. And much use has been thought to be made of the so-called standard contractual clauses, which are some legal clauses to be included in contracts, which in many ways provide the protection of GDPR to that data. However, this week a potential spanner has been thrown into the works of the use of standard contractual clauses, thanks to reference to a US piece of legislation called the Uniform Foreign Country Money Judgments Recognition Act. The reason that act is important and how it affects the standard contractual clauses is that ordinarily, if you are a data processor in the US and you don't have a physical presence within the European Union or the UK, under the EU-US Privacy Shield, you were pretty safe because even if there was a data breach and a penalty was imposed by the court in Europe or the regulator in Europe, it was actually very unlikely that that penalty would be enforced against a entity solely based in the USA simply because the US EU legal systems don't really allow a way for that to happen because the US courts only allow collection of penalties which have been imposed in the US except for some rare circumstances. And that largely held true because it was established that US companies could fairly claim ignorance of the rules of GDPR as far as Europe was concerned and therefore they could effectively shrug their shoulders at any penalty and just simply not pay it. But the introduction of the standard contractual clauses into that argument has nullified that defence because the standard contractual clauses do allow for a penalty which is imposed in the European courts or the European regulators to be imposed by the US courts on an entity even if that entity is wholly contained within the US if that entity is dealing with data which is related to EU or UK citizens. And that's all thanks to this Uniform Foreign Country Money Judgments Recognition Act which certainly most people on the UK EU side of the Atlantic have probably never heard of. This is going to result in further lengthy negotiations, no doubt, on how best to deal with this, because it may well be that the way to deal with it under GDPR is to use the standard contractual clauses, but it may be that a US entity would be very nervous about accepting the standard contractual clauses because of the potential implication that if a financial penalty was imposed in the EU or the UK, that that could then be collectible against them in the US. We don't have an immediate answer to this and it's no doubt a legal discussion which will roll on for the next few weeks if not months. But as soon as we have any update or any clarification on this we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Week Show because finding a solution to the notification of the EU-US Data Privacy Shield is foremost in most people's minds if they have any dealing with transfer of data to and for across the Atlantic. I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours.
all you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! Following the Cambridge Analytica scandal that showed the power of micro-targeting during the 2016 US presidential election and the UK Brexit referendum, you'd probably think that voter data, in particular electoral registers, would be very carefully looked after. Whilst generally that's true, there tend to still be slip-ups, and in March this year it emerged that a massive political data leak had taken place in Malta. Alarmingly, the data breach in Malta which exposed the voters' list, showed not only the names, addresses, phone numbers and dates of birth of 337,384 Maltese voters, that's 75% of the entire population of Malta, but also their polling booths, polling box numbers and voting preferences. It's not hard to see how such information could be maliciously used to target voters. The Maltese Electoral Commission, which organises local, national and European Parliament elections and maintains the official voter register, gives updated information to the political parties to maintain transparent electoral processes. A copy of this sensitive personal data somehow made its way into a wide open directory indexed by Google, held by Planet IT Solutions, a private Maltese IT company owned by Philip Ferrugia, who just happens to be brother-in-law of the Labour Party's Parliament Secretary for European Funds, Stefan Zrinzo Azapardi. The Labour Party, one of Malta's only two main political parties and currently in government, maintains that the IT system in question is not the same one used by the party. Ferrugia Planet maintains that the data is old, but that's not much consolation to those who've had their data leaked. The Information and Data Protection Commissioner's Office in Malta said that it had been made aware of the breach through media reporting, but an investigation would be launched. In parallel, European Privacy Rights, non-government organisation NOYB.eu, the Daphne Foundation and Republica have teamed up and organised a platform that allows citizens affected by the data breach to sue Seaplanet in a collective class action. In a democracy, we cannot accept the processing of political data spiralling out of control. Political parties in particular should not be using voters' information for purposes other than what the law permits them to do. Could you imagine your political preferences being used to deny you access to a public service or an employment opportunity, said Romain Robert, data protection lawyer at NOYB. If we receive any update from the Data Protection Commission in Malta as their investigation proceeds, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. A spokesperson for the French Data Protection Authority, CNIL, has confirmed that CNIL have launched an investigation against the social media platform TikTok after receiving a data subjects complaint alleging that TikTok had violated the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. The CNIL investigation was initiated following a data subjects complaint relating to a request to delete a video on the social platform. The data subject alleged that TikTok has violated the GDPR right to be forgotten, but the investigation has since been expanded to include issues relating to transparency requirements about how TikTok processes user data, users' data access rights, transfers of user data outside the EU, and the steps taken to ensure the data of minors is adequately protected. TikTok is currently attempting to set its principal European establishment in Ireland. If successful, the investigation may be transferred from CNIL to the hands of the Ireland's Data Protection Commission, the DPC. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
And we finish this week with breaking news that the jewellery retailer Claire's Accessories is facing a lawsuit in the US for a data breach. The class action alleges that Claire's store's weak security practices led to a breach that exposed customer data, including payment, card and account information. The jewellery retailer also failed to notify affected customers for more than a month, which led to ongoing identity theft, plaintiff Julia Rossi claims in the complaint originally filed in Illinois. Once we have more information on this and how it may impact upon the UK branches of Claire's Accessories, which are themselves at the moment undergoing a review following the impact of the Top ID19 pandemic, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.